Who was your hero growing up? The thing about heroes is that inevitably they end up disappointing us. Why is that? Why is it people that we look up to, that we admire, often just fall apart when it comes down to it? Whenever it um, really comes to the moment and you see, are they going to stand up? So many times our heroes actually just aren't the people that we thought they were. I don't even remember in, I think it was 2008, when Obama became president, and it was such a time of hope. And, and I remember watching his inauguration and actually, actually tearing up, which doesn't happen that often for me. And I was just like, wow, this is such an amazing time. I was in America eight years later, and they were selling um, sweets called Obama Disappointments, which was really like, oh my goodness. This guy came with such hope and people expecting these things, and yet lots of people were disappointed in him. I think he was a great guy, but um, he, um, he did lots, he just didn't quite reach what people were after. And we've all got heroes, haven't we? We've been looking through um, the Old Testament at people who were Jesus' ancestors. And we've seen people who were little known, people who were low status, like Ruth, people who are really unexpected, like Judah, um, we've heard about. But we're coming to one now who is really famous. Every single Jew would have had this guy on their list of heroes, King David. He was a man who won great military victories. He wrote many worship songs to God. He loved God wholeheartedly, and God said he was a man after his own heart. And yet there was something that went wrong. We're going to look at that today. I'm really, really excited to be looking at the Old Testament. Um, I just love the Old Testament. I know I'll go on about this. Um, if I'm speaking to you, I'm sorry, but it's just so great. I used to kind of think, Old Testament, what is going on? This is so boring. It's all over the place. It doesn't make any sense. And then about five or six years ago, God just started to do something in me, and I, I just love it. Every time I read it, well, not every time, a lot of the time when I read it, I just see something so wonderful there. And truly, the whole thing points to Jesus. The reason we can love the Old Testament is because we learn about Jesus, whom we love. So I'm actually going to go through the whole of the Old Testament this morning. So we are going to be here till tomorrow morning. Lock the doors. No, um, it's going to be very quick. We're going to zoom out and take this overall view. And then we're going to zoom in, look at the story of King David before we zoom out and get to the end of the Old Testament. You guys excited? Great. I am too. So let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter one. God creates the heavens and the earth. He goes through and creates everything that we see around us. And at the end, he says, this is good. He creates a man and a woman who live in the garden. And he gives them everything that there is there to enjoy, food, each other, but mainly the beauty and the joy of being in God's presence and under his rule. Because that is perfection. That is happiness. That is joy. And so there's only one condition there. He says, you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, This you could literally talk about all day. There's so much in it. But knowledge in Hebrew is such a a practical word. The word, often when when they're talking about sex, they'll say, so-and-so knew his wife and then she became pregnant. It's such an experiential thing. So what he's saying is, I don't want you to go and get this experience for yourself of good good and evil. I want you to listen to me and stay under my rule. But they don't listen. And we, I'm just going to read a quick verse from it. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But there is another creature in the garden, a snake. And the snake speaks to the man and the woman 
and deceives them. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve take the fruit. They disobey God and the result is death, pain, suffering, curses on the environment around them, toil and suffering enters the human race. But then God gives a wonderful promise. I will put, um, he's speaking to the snake and he's actually putting a curse on the snake and saying, your time is coming. I will put enmity, enmity, I can't say that word, um, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is really key for understanding the next few books, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We are waiting for this champion to come. Someone is coming who is going to get this snake and snap at his head. Yes, this guy is coming. But who will it be? We keep on reading Genesis, and time and time again, people muck up. People listen to the wrong voice. They keep on listening to the snake and the world just seems to get worse and worse and worse. Eventually, God singles out a man called Abraham. God appears to him. He reveals himself to him and gives him a promise as well. So we're going to read that in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And this is the bit. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we've got two promises going through the Bible. This one from the garden, the snake crusher is coming. The one to Abraham, one of your descendants will bless everyone in the world. What's going on? And so hundreds of years pass. Abraham's descendants are an absolute mess. Not one of them has come close to being this blessing to the whole world. Um, They're slaves in Egypt, and God decides to rescue them, and he gives them a new leader called Moses. After rescuing the people, God gives them a number of rules and laws to follow. And then there's another key promise that he makes, and this is the other key promise I want you to keep in your head. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Three promises to keep in your head. The snake crusher, the descendant of Abraham who will be a blessing to all nations, and then one who will keep God's law perfectly and be a perfect worshiper, and follow him, and be um, a priest and a holy nation, someone who is holy and follows after God. So, the story continues. God brings the people into a land that they can have as their own. But time and time and time and time and time again, the people fail to keep their side of the bargain. This Mosaic law, the one given to Moses, which says, if you do this, then I'll bless you. If you do this, you'll be my people. They, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They keep on mucking up. And it's not like they're just slightly mucking up. When you're reading it, it's like, oh my goodness, these guys are messed up. They are totally going away from God. And you're reading it and you're supposed to think, what is going on here? Why are these people so bad? And so eventually the people reject God as their leader. Now God 
at times has withdrawn from them and taken away his blessing and then their enemies come and then they turn back. But eventually they say, you know what? We don't want God to rule over us anymore. We want a king. We want to be like the other countries and have our own king. And so God gives them a man called Saul who starts off really well, actually. You're reading about him and you're like, oh, wow, great. This guy is, he's really good. I think he's gonna, he's gonna bring some good to this country. But then unfortunately, he crumbles as well. And then God says to him, your kingdom shall not continue. You have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so here we are in this situation. The people are rejecting God. The king has rejected God. What is going to happen? None of these three promises look to be coming to fruition. And then we come to King David. David was an absolute nobody. He was the youngest of probably 10 children in a backwater town in the middle of nowhere. And as a young boy, he was in his teens and he was working for his father looking after sheep. And that would have been the expectation that he would see out his days looking after sheep in the countryside. But then a prophet comes to the family home and tells the absolutely shocked family that David will be king. Just imagine that I've got a younger brother. If someone turned up and said he was going to be king, I'd be like, are you completely out of your mind? But this is what happens. And so he anoints him, he puts oil on his head as a symbol of what's going to happen. And David at this age is, is really young, between 10 and 15, they reckon. So he's a young guy. But he's absolutely amazing. And we start reading about David, and the author is at real pains to say, this guy is fantastic. So if we look at the different promises, we see how the author is saying, look, David's actually keeping these things. So the promise that was given to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. We read a story about David in 2 Samuel 6, where David leaves the ark, which was the physical the symbol of God's presence, with a foreigner, with a guy called Obed-Edom. Um, and ethnically, he wasn't Jewish. He was actually from Philistine. He was a Philistine. So he was one of their enemies. But under David's rule, he had come to see how great God, Yahweh, is. And he'd become a Jew himself. He'd left where he was and he'd been brought in. David's rule was bringing in people. And actually, it says that um, when, when God's presence was living in his house, that he was blessed. And later we read about this man. Actually, he became part of David's main worship band. So he was there singing praises to God. How amazing is that? And David was bringing this about. Through David, tick, the nations were being blessed. Then we look at the law of Moses. So later, um, so if you remember the law of Moses, someone that's going to keep the law and follow what God says, but also is going to be a true worshiper and worship God wholeheartedly. So eventually they take the... Um, take the item from Obed-Edom's house and they bring it up to Jerusalem, the capital. Now, as they're doing that, David is just absolutely overcome with worship and awe to God. And he absolutely goes for it in worshiping him. It's not just words for David. It's full-bodied enthusiasm. He was dancing. He was singing. He was running around. He was so excited about who God is. And we read as well so many of the poems that he wrote in Psalms, just under half of the Psalms, so the main book of poetry in the Old Testament, were written by King David. One of them, he says, Oh God, 
you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, so my lips will glorify you. If I come to the front and sing something like that, (laughs) God's spirit is on me. David was overflowing. Tick. Fulfilling the Abrahamic, fulfilling the Mosaic. And then we look at um, also his obedience as well. Sorry, so in, in the Moses, David time and time again, he's a great military leader. And often he has to go out to battle the Philistines. And he's this hero, this, this general who um, defeats his enemies. But each time he gets on his knees and he prays and he says, God, what should I do? Should I go? He listens for his voice. He asks for his guidance. He's a true follower of Yahweh. And then we're looking at this promise here in Genesis, the one who will crush the snake's head. So the story of David and Goliath, this is really cool. So um, I'm sure you remember the story. Um, if you don't, um, Goliath is this giant from um, the Philistines, and he is taunting Israel and saying, no one can defeat me, I am mighty the people of God are powerless before me. Send one man up to beat me and then you will um, have defeated the whole country. And no one will go because they're all too scared. And then David comes along and he has faith. And he says, no, someone cannot speak about God like that. I will take a stand. And so he follows. But in the text, there's such a cool little clue. It says that Goliath wore armor with scales like a snake. Goliath was dressed like a snake, a mighty warrior who can defeat the people, who, who is defeating the people of God. The people of God are cowering before this snake-like giant and saying, I can't do it. But David gets a sling, goes like this, hits him on the head. The snake's head is crushed. Wow, <laughs> what's going on here? We see this man, he's, he seems to be fulfilling everything. He's, he's, he's crushed the snake. He has been a blessing to all nations, and then we see that he's a perfect worshiper. He's, he's a worshiper who worships God wholeheartedly and follows the law. Is this the one? Is David the offspring who's been promised? So we're going to look at a passage in a bit more detail now where God makes a promise to David, and this is the other key promise for understanding the Old Testament. So we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you might want to look at it because we'll be looking at this for a wee bit longer. Um, so, but it'll be on the screen as well. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So, at this point, David had been given rest from his enemies, which was just a remarkable thing for this people. Anyway, they'd been for hundreds of years fighting, 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 fighting. But under David's leadership, they'd won. They were safe. They were secure. They had peace. And David was living in luxury in a cedar. Now, this is the first little hint or one of the first hints that something's not quite right in David. Moses, way back in the story, had given very specific instructions to Israel's kings and he'd said, there's, there's three things I don't want you to do. Firstly, I don't want you to build up a huge army because you trust in God. 
Secondly, I don't want you to take many wives, because that's not my plan for marriage. And thirdly, I don't want you to amass huge amounts of wealth. I want you to be a servant. And yet, David here is living in luxury. He's not quite fulfilling. And we see this Moses covenant starting to crumble slightly. But God's dwelling was in a tent. So this ark, which had been in Obed-Edom's house, um, this um, foreigner, was, was living in a tent. So throughout the story, um, this presence of God had been moved around in a tent. And it was a place of worship for Israel. Just as an aside, if you're ever reading a psalm of David and it says, I go up to your house, like in Psalm 122, the temple wasn't built at that point. So they were going up to this tent where God's ark was. But, God, but David says, I want to build a proper house or a proper temple. Now, for David, this was quite an understandable thing. In that culture, ancient Near Eastern kings, they got rich. They got lots of wives. Um, but they also would build huge temples to their god, kind of as a symbol for themselves as well in some ways. And it's understandable, actually, that David would want to do this as well, to show to the world how great his god is. But then we'll read on verse 4. That same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So as I say, since God had rescued his people from Egypt, um, God's presence in this ark or the tabernacle had been moving around with the people. How humble is that? The God who created the world and everything in it is carried around the desert and the dirt with his people. He doesn't make them build him a huge house, but rather he humbly dwells with them where they are. And If we look at the end of verse 7, his priority is to shepherd my people Israel. The word used there for shepherd is actually the word that's used for giving grazing to animals. So if you were were looking after sheep, you would shepherd. This, This word would be to come and take them to somewhere where they can eat and they can flourish. And that's what God's trying to do for his people. He's doing for his people, if only they would listen to him. God's priority was providing for his people, not being provided for by them. So read on. Verse 8. Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. God reminds David that he's a shepherd and that's actually what he's calling him to do. I want you to serve my people. But time, if we just look at the text here, God is the one who takes the active role. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you and then I will make for you a great name. If we read on verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, 
this is the other important promise in the Old Testament. So if you're reading the Old Testament and you're trying to get a grips with it, just keep in mind these four promises. And often the author is trying to engage with these promises and say, so we've got the snake crusher in Genesis. We've got the blessing to the nations through Abraham. We've got one who, who fulfills God's law and worships him perfectly. And then we've also got um, this new one here, this one for David, which says that one of his descendants will be the one that reigns. And actually, this reign will be like nothing else because it will last forever. And so the text says, well, David's not the one. But the story continues, still looking for this person. Who will it be? Now, over the next couple of chapters, David continues to do really, really well. He wins great military victories. There's a really, really nice story in, I think it's 2 Samuel 9, where he shows great mercy and kindness to the son of his great enemy. And you just see something of God's loving kindness towards those who are against him in that. And David continues to, to walk and follow Yahweh. But we're told more about the little chinks appearing in David's armor. He starts to... In addition to taking lots of wealth, he takes lots of wives as well. Now, culturally, that was very normal for, some, for a king in that age to have hundreds of wives. But, but David starts to compromise. He takes on multiple wives. He builds up riches. Now, the Bible is very clear that this wasn't right, but you won't be reading the text. And then it says, and David took many wives. And God said, that's really bad. Because the, the Old Testament doesn't work like that. It's what's called meditation literature. It's designed that we read it again and again and again and again. And each time you read it, you'll pick up on new details. And that's why we continue to read the Bible. Reading through the Bible in a year is such a great thing, or even in a longer period or whatever. But just continue to read, because every time we read, we pick up new bits, and God will continue to speak to you. And it has been designed that way deliberately. I've been reading the Bible for, I don't know, 20 plus years, but it's designed so that when I'm 90, God willing, um, that I will still be able to read it and say, oh my goodness, I didn't see that. And actually, often you just like, oh my, wow, this, this just shows me something new about God. And so keep on reading it. But disaster comes. One night, David is out on a rooftop. He looks out and he sees a woman called Bathsheba. And she's having a bath now. That was quite normal in that country to, to take a bath on the roof. And you're, you're reading, and you're like, surely this man of God will look away and say, oh, sorry, and just walk. But, but he doesn't. Those small compromises have added up. And now he looks, and he sees that she's beautiful. He stares, he takes her in. And then it gets worse. He sends for her. Now that the text there makes it sound very banal, but imagine you're Bathsheba. These armed guards come from the king whilst you're having a bath and say, you, come with me right now. And she's dragged off to King David's house. They have sex. And then she goes home. How awful is that? That he would take this woman, treat her so disgustingly, and then just send her away. What's happened to David's heart? Later, she sends word that she's fallen pregnant. And David panics. And this was an opportunity for him to confess and say, I've done wrong. But he doesn't. He, he does everything he can to cover, cover it up. He, 
eventually ends up killing her husband and marrying her himself so he can pretend that the baby is his. So David kills a loyal, faithful soldier who served him well. He forces a woman to come to the palace and have sex with him. What choice did she have? And David doesn't make any steps to remedy the situation. It's only when a friend comes to him and says, what are you doing? That finally his eyes are opened and he sees what he's done. And this moment is when something genuine happens in David. He is filled with deep, deep remorse. He is so regretful for what he's done. He writes a poem, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He doesn't hide. He doesn't make excuses. He owns his sin. He apologizes. And he asks for cleansing. And he returns to following God. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But just as the story continues, you see that even though God forgives him, what David has done has really awful consequences. And the rest of his life really is about him trying to deal with the fallout from what happened. But he ends his life faithful to God. And so we are left waiting in the story for the offspring who will come. So David is a man whose life has many shades. There's light there. He's a man of great faith. He listened to what God told him. He was a wholehearted worshiper who loves God. But he made some terrible decisions and committed dreadful sin. It's just like us, isn't it? (laughs) We are a mix of good and bad. There's things we look back on and we're really proud of. We're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. And there's things we look back on and we're just so ashamed. But how do we, how do we work this out? How, how do we think about David? There's a hint in his name. David, the meaning of it is beloved. <laughs> he was someone whom God had chosen and decided that he was going to pour out his unconditional never-ending, relentless love into his life. This chesed. Nothing could stop God from achieving his purposes. And so it is with you. You may feel like you have mucked up in a way that, that no one would believe, but God is still with you. God is faithful. God loves you. And God wants to continue to pour out his love into your life. But the story continues. So we're left with these four key promises. The snake crusher from the garden. The blessing to the nations in Abraham. The true worshiper and follower of the law for Moses. And for David, the king who will reign forever from David's line. And so David's descendants come and go. His next one, Solomon, we'll be hearing about next week. Start off well, but spoiler alert, mucks up. Um, And things just continue to get worse and worse. And eventually, after a few hundred years, the last kings are really dreadful, like super, super bad. So God punishes them. He sends them into exile. The temple, the sign of God's presence is destroyed. 
But after 70 years, a small group return and rebuild the temple. And many prophets appear saying the promised descendant was still to come. And this is how the Old Testament ends. These four promises unfulfilled, but the prophetic word saying one is coming. And then there's silence for 400 years. Imagine living in that time. What's, what's God going to do? Keeping your faith in that time as you see that it's just not right. And this is why the New Testament is so great. <laughs> the first line of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What? Why does Matthew put that in? This guy who mucked up so badly? Well, David's in pride of place. He's the first mentioned person in Matthew's book other than Jesus himself. You see, when we turn back to God, when we come to him, he can turn our life around completely. There's no situation, literally none, that can't be turned around. I I know a guy well who was um, in prison. He was a heroin addict and committed dreadful, dreadful crimes. God, God got a hold of him. He's now a pastor in Edinburgh with two little girls. There's story after story. I don't know if you heard on the radio this week about what God's doing in El Salvador. It's on Radio 4. They don't normally bring us reports of the gospel spreading. But um, there's, there's a pastor they were interviewing over there who is um, leading gang members in El Salvador who, who have literally killed tens or, or hundreds of people to Christ. And their life is completely turned around because this is what Jesus does. And so Matthew is keen the reader doesn't forget exactly what happened. If we read further on verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's not that it all gets swept under the carpet. God hated what he did. But yet, with David turning back to God, God was able to make something beautiful out of it. But still we are left. Who will this one be? And the answer is Jesus. For the Moses covenant, purity. You will never get someone purer than Jesus. He never touched a woman in any other way than than affectionate love. He never had an impure thought in his mind. He never strayed from God's commandments once to the left or the right. (laughs) He never took advantage of the weak. He never used other people for his own benefit. He served them and he loved them. And he was a true worshiper of God, following him exactly, praising him and helping others to know the Father. The David covenant. Jesus is the king who will rule forever. He is reigning right now in heaven. And for all time he will reign. Nothing can stop that. We have a choice. Are we going to be in his kingdom or out of it? But our choice doesn't affect the outcome. Jesus is king. Jesus will rule forever. The Abraham covenant, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through this one. (laughs) Look at us. How many of us are ethnically Jewish? Thank you so much, Jesus, that you have done this for us, that you've brought us into your your kingdom, and you are the blessing for all of us. At the end of time, every tribe, every nation will be represented before him. And so we're left with the snake-crusher promise. And this is Jesus to a T. It says of Gideon that he was, uh, not Gideon, sorry, of Goliath, that he was taunting the Israelites for 40 days and 40 nights, the snake calling out. 
Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and the snake did his best to tempt him. Time and time again, he said, do this, do that. But Jesus didn't once waver. He always followed God. He listened to him and he defeated the snake. And so we are like the people who were standing around fearful that we can't overcome, but Jesus has done it for us. Jesus is the one who can do whatever we need. If we come to him, he can turn around any situation. He can help us in our life. He can do what we can't do. He is strong and we are weak. We just need to trust him more. We love him. (laughs) If you're a follower of Jesus, has he once disappointed you? Has he once reneged on his promise? Has he once gone back on what he said? Jesus truly is the most awesome, awe-inspiring, wonderful person you will ever know. What he's done in my life, I can't even begin to tell, but I was much closer to David in his bad than, than I was to Jesus. But, but God is working in me, and he's working in you, and he's building a people, he's building his church, so that we can be a blessing to others, so that we can be a blessing to the nations. As we look around here and we're this small group of people, but we have Jesus with us. And a small group of people with Jesus is mightier than the biggest army without. And so we go in faith that Jesus is the one who is is the hope of the world. When you meet somebody and they say something to you, try and just mention the word of Jesus. If someone says to you, you know, what's... Is there a reason that you're so happy? Just, just mention Jesus. Someone said that to me a few weeks ago, and, and I said, and the guy I said it to was like, oh, wow, can you tell me more? I was so shocked. But this is what happens, and God has called us for a work. So just like David, we come through grace. We don't deserve to be in his kingdom. We don't deserve to be here. But through what Jesus has done, we have forgiveness, we have new life, and we have new hope following him.